Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we are going to have the smartest conversation you will hear all week about Tuesday night's midterm primaries and what's coming up down the pike. We're going to pick it apart from a couple angles. The standout results from Tuesday night, and we'll pour one out for former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty. Why Democrats in the Midwest seem to be betting on establishment candidates, maybe even boring candidates. And then a look ahead to what's coming up in late August and in September, which is somehow... Uh, only a few weeks away, and how it's all setting up these big midterm elections. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, August 16th, so it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests from Politico's great political team covering these midterm elections. They will be with us the entire show this week. We have uh, Elena Schneider, our house expert. Hi, Elena. Hey, Scott. Also in the studio, we have Steve Shepard, our polling analyst. Hi, Steve. Hey, Scott. And on Skype from the left coast, we have David Siders. Hi, David. Hi, Scott. And David's one of our national political correspondents. So let's jump right into our first data point five This is the fifth time this year that Scott Walker is running for governor of Wisconsin. He is, of course, the current governor of Wisconsin. There was an unsuccessful run way back in 2006, but since then, it's been uh, smooth sailing for him. He won in 2010, and then he won a recall in 2012, and then he won re-election in 2014, and now he's running for re-election again. Very busy guy. Uh, Very impressive, given that he's only 50. He also fit a run for president in there, although that was pretty short one. Um, Anyway, now after Tuesday, we know his opponent in the fall will be Tony Evers, uh, who's a statewide education official in Wisconsin. And so let's pick it up from there. I'll open it up to the group. Uh, Is this race against Evers going to be Governor Scott Walker's toughest run so far? Steve? Other than the presidential campaign? Well, yeah, let's... (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, sure. Look, I think there's a natural fatigue that voters have when somebody's been governor for eight years. It's, it's the reason why we don't see that many three-term governors, uh, even in states that allow, uh, that don't have uh, uh, term limits like that. Uh, it's also the national environment. Look at the two other years that Scott Walker won in 2010 and 2014 in, in regular elections. Those are great years for Republicans. In, in the 2012 recall, you had a lot of voters, if you go back and look at the exit poll there, who said that it wasn't really appropriate to recall a governor so early in his term that he should be given a chance. Uh, And so he was able to get some crossover and independent voters via that, even if people weren't necessarily thrilled uh, by the legislation that they passed that restricted uh, collective bargaining rights for public sector employees. Uh, So I I think that this year you have Tony Evers has been 
uh, a statewide official for 10 years there. He's, he's a known quantity. Education's a potent issue for Democrats this cycle, I think, uh, when you look at the polling. So I, I, I do think he has he's in the fight of his political life. And David, as you've written and, and reported on, uh, Democrats are have kind of layered in Wisconsin the enthusiasm they're feeling everywhere to kind of turn out and vote in in this election with a real sense of urgency in Wisconsin in particular, where they got kind of taken by surprise by President Donald Trump winning in 2016 and by Senator Ron Johnson getting reelected, right? Right. I think you've certainly seen a lot more uh – an, an, an effort, anyway, to have better organizing. It's not going to match the the machine that Walker has has set up in Wisconsin, but it does seem to be more active than before. And I, I mean, I think it's worth keeping in mind that if you're in Wisconsin as a Democrat, you know, Scott Walker was the bogeyman long before Donald Trump was. So you know, this is somebody they've been gunning for for a long time. And I'm not sure if that whether that means a harder reelection this year than than before. Although I'm inclined to believe everything that that Steve just said. I'm more or less always inclined to believe everything that, that, that Steve says on the podcast. That's your first mistake. <laughs> uh, Indeed. <laughs> Elena, what, what else did we learn on in Tuesday's primaries? Uh, you wrote about a series of firsts or, or potential firsts that Democrats kind of set up uh, for themselves in the midterm elections with a bunch of victories on, on primary night. That's right. We had a we had a whole host of history-making candidates who were able to come through in their primaries. Uh, for, chief among them, Christine Hauquist, who will be the first transgender uh, candidate on a major party ticket for governor out in Vermont. She's got certainly an uphill battle against Phil Scott, but certainly it's, uh, it's history to watch a transgender candidate make that kind of a first. And then also uh, Johanna Hayes, who is a Democrat running in Connecticut's 5th District. She was able to beat uh, a lifelong local politician, somebody who has built up uh, or a background to one day make the jump to the House. And she failed um, because Johanna Hayes was able to run a really compelling sort of personal story focused race. Uh, and, and she'll now be, if she is able to win this race, she would be the first African-American woman and the first African-American Democrat to represent the state of Connecticut in Congress. And she... Uh, was I, I believe the she was the national teacher of the year in That's right. 2015 or 2016. 2016, yeah. And and she's just somebody who has this incredibly compelling story who was able to tell it in a really vivid and moving way. And I think that Democrats, the sort of the old adage is that, you know, Democrats fall in love with their candidates. And I think she's one in an example of somebody who um who people really fell in love with, even though this the sort of lifelong local politician even got the support from the Chamber of Commerce. Granted, it was two days before the primary, and uh, they didn't spend any money on her behalf. But she might, um, given sort of her more moderate background, one could argue she might be better better suited to a district that's, uh, you know, not deep blue. Um, but look, this is also not the year in which moderate Democrats necessarily are going to come out of primaries, always speaking. I think, though, we have seen we've seen a fair number of moderate Democrats come out of primaries when they've been able to attach that maybe not particularly standout ideology with a really great personal story like you just right. mentioned, right? And I think that it's uh, that, that's been a really interesting feature of not just last night's primaries, but the, the whole arc of primaries so far this year uh, is, is how, how invested uh, Democrats in House districts, uh, Senate campaigns, gubernatorial have gotten in those kind of personal stories of, of some of these some of these candidates running for office. 
Well, and it's part of also how they're able to really catch fire in fundraising, right? I mean, that's that's where that's we've right. seen that's right. That's where we've seen somebody like Amy McGrath or uh, Randy Bryce uh, be able to tell a real MJ Hagar down in Texas. Um, those are three candidates who. Uh, Look, in particular, Amy McGrath and MJ Hagar have uphill battles in their races and are certainly positioning themselves in a, a bit more of the sort of, you know, centrist focused lane and um, and have been able to catch fire because they've told their personal story in a really compelling way and raised millions of dollars off of that. Makes you think about the the presidential race that's going to be coming up and all those Democrats are going to be running and who has the best story to tell that could potentially catch fire like I don't know the answer off the top of my head well and they're treated like movie trailers at this point oh yeah um, and I think that you know if you're not able to tell sort of your story in a movie trailer shareable video um, that might be a hard thing to get out of the gate with wonder what the movie trailer version of the nerdcast would look like in a world where nerds talk about politics one show steps into the breach Politico's nerdcast I want to I want to shift back to the Midwest real real quickly and talk about uh, some of the Republican uh, primaries on uh, Tuesday uh, before we before we kind of leave uh, Tuesday's primaries behind. Um, we saw Tim Pawlenty, the former uh, popular Republican governor of Minnesota, served two terms there, then ran for president, didn't work out. Came to Washington, was a uh, worked for the financial services industry for a little while, and then made a comeback. And the comeback was cut short in, in a primary on Tuesday night. D- David, I know I know you were particularly interested. And we're going to talk about the Democratic side uh, in in Minnesota in a second. But I know you've been particularly interested in watching what's happening in Minnesota this year. I mean, we're, can, can you w- walk us through what happened there as, as you know, seemingly Tim Pawlenty now, now really, really done with politics? Well, I mean, what you just said, the, the financial services industry, the, those three words don't exactly play in a Republican primary or probably any kind of primary. But what he said on on primary night when he was talking to supporters was that in the era of Trump, he doesn't fit in in the Republican Party. And I, I think that's clearly probably true. Uh, it, it's a huge sigh of del- relief for the DFL there because Palenti was expected to be much more you – know, he, he would have had much more money to run. Um, and I think I think it tipped the – it has tipped the early race anyway um, now to be leaning in the Democrats' favor there. Is he done? I don't know. Is the – is the Trump era done? I guess <laughs> that probably is where it hinges. He's still pretty young. Steve, it's very interesting, though, that like Pawlenty in some way, maybe more than a lot of other people, kind of foresaw and foretold the evolution of the Republican Party in, you know, in terms of the coalition that Trump has built, this working class coalition. But Pawlenty himself has just been kind of utterly unsuited to, to take advantage of it. That's absolutely right. I'm old enough to remember when Tim Pawlenty first ran for governor and he talked about, we, we can't just be the party of the country club. We have to be the party of Sam's club. Uh, and he thought that his persona... Does Sam's club still exist? Oh my God. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. I think there's one in North Dakota. <laughs> oh my God. Right next to there's, the blockbuster. There's probably like a thousand of Sam's club in the country. It's... Costco in the heartland. Um, We'll cut that out, right? (laughs) (laughs) Word from the booth. We're going to lay this one to rest. There are 597 Sam's Clubs in the United States for the record. Sorry, Steve, continue. Tim Pawlenty thought that he could be that messenger that could bring uh, the Republican Party's version and his version of conservatism to working class voters. Uh, It just turns out that 
especially when we got to 2012. We saw it in his presidential campaign. He didn't even make it to 2012, actually. He dropped out in 2011. Uh, and, and then through 2016, that those voters weren't looking for a guy who wears flannel shirts, uh, kind of has an aw shucks demeanor, talks about his high school hockey career. They were looking for someone like Donald Trump who gets up on a debate stage and coins kind of derogatory nicknames for his opponents and gets the crowd whooped into a frenzy. And that's what brought those voters into the fold. It's one of the reasons why was Minnesota was only a one-point race at the presidential level. He brought all those voters that Tim Pawlenty wanted to bring over to the Republican side. Um, and now he Tim Pawlenty runs for governor in that party and can't even crack 44 percent of the vote. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's leave uh, – uh, part one there and kind of shift into part two, a, a nice smooth transition because we're still going to be talking a little bit about uh, some some of the other Democratic primaries from uh, Tuesday night, but through the lens of kind of Democrats in the Midwest right now. And we'll talk about, so Pawlenty lost that primary to Jeff Johnson, who's going to be the Republican nominee again for governor. And the Democrat he's going to face is Congressman Tim Walls, who came through uh, the DFL primary in uh, Minnesota uh, after after leaving his congressional seat open uh, last year to try and try and make a run for the big chair in his state. And I think he's an interesting example of the types of candidates that Democrats are nominating for governor in the Midwest uh, and, and maybe in some of these uh, House campaigns too this year. David, you wrote this week about how uh, kind of by and large doing a survey of the candidates, Midwestern Democrats are, are not really, at least the, the voters aren't really lurching to the left uh, the way maybe has been written about uh, kind of writ, writ large uh, in, in the party this year. I think at the gubernatorial level, that's the case. And, and so there's been a, a stream of candidates who are older, uh, white, mostly male. These are long-term public officials, technocrats who are, are carrying the nominations. I don't think that that's necessarily that's it's not true um, in all the congressional races, uh, in districts that are are more liberal, uh, but at least in these statewide primaries at the top of the ticket, that that's what we're seeing. What what does that what does that tell us? Do we think about kind of the, the way the party is setting itself up ahead of ahead of twenty twenty? Well, it's one argument for a kind of milk and water. Uh, candidate in November. But I think what, what the real wait, wait, test wait, is... Wait, can we, you, milk and water, can you explain that? Oh, I, I, well, as opposed to whiskey and, um, <laughs> you know... Or fire uh, yeah, and brimstone. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there it is, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think Daniel Strauss, our colleague, called these people uh, Eatra Spinach Democrats, and <laughs> maybe that's right. So, it, And it's not necessarily an ideological difference, uh, although in some cases it is, but it's more stylistic. Uh, and I, I guess that's why I... <laughs> I say milk and water. But but what's interesting is maybe less so what happened on Tuesday is what it sets up for November, because winning a primary is one thing. If if, for example, Tony Evers, this you know, elderly, white, long term uh, politician in Wisconsin is able to be the Walker Slayer after all these years, uh, I think that will get some 2020 candidates to take notice of of what kind of people are successful in the Midwest. That's an interesting point. I, w I was struck in this primary that you, you had Tim Walls, um, who, who was a, a pretty moderate Democratic congressman who had like formerly had good ratings from the NRA and uh, so on and so forth, who did not win the state party endorsement. That went to a very progressive state rep, Aaron Murphy, but who comes through the primary. 
and and you know kind of win one pretty comfortably. Um, and, and, you know, kind of following in the footsteps of, like, Ralph Northam in Virginia in in 2017 and, um, you know, yeah, a lot like Evers, uh, who maybe had, had some potentially more progressive or at least fire-breathing challengers to his left. On the flip side, you see on, on the Republican side, you, you had, you know, the state Republican Party, the activists in Minnesota lined up with Johnson, who won the primary over Paul Enti in Wisconsin, they lined up with Leah Vukmir in the Senate race, and she won the primary over Kevin Nicholson, who had a ton of outside money spent on his behalf. I just wonder if, like, d- does this tell us something about the uh, the relative weight and control that the party, like that the real core activists have in both parties? That maybe liberal activists do not have the sway in bigger Democratic primaries that that maybe. We might think. So from San Diego to Pittsburgh, I kept hearing from voters that they wanted somebody who was going to win. And that means different things to different people. So that sometimes then, you know, it comes through as, you know, take like Mike Levin, somebody who was supported by the activists in that in that district, somebody who was very popular. In among, California 49. In California 49, exactly. They didn't go for sort of an outsider voice or the person who who had the most money spent on their, ha- on their behalf. And it looks like, you know, again, Connor Lamb, somebody who was obviously selected by um, conferee process, so not exactly a perfect primary, but he got a ton of support by Democrats because they knew, even though he wasn't necessarily this a progressive star, he knew that, you know, they knew that he was going to win in a district like that. So they think there is a certain amount of pragmatism that I hear from these voters that they just want somebody who's going to win. And it just depends on, you know, obviously it depends on what, who they think is actually going to work in a district. And I think that that's why we see some variation in the kinds of Democrats. It's not all these like sort of moderate Democrats who are coming through. Uh, but it may help explain why we saw uh, someone like Tim Wall succeed in, in Minnesota's because they're making the calculation of what's going to work in a Midwestern state like theirs. Steve? Scott, you used a word in that question for Elena in some of these bigger Democratic primaries. And I, I think that's the perfect word because some of these Democratic primaries have been supersized when you look at the number of voters who are coming to take part in, in, in the process, who are casting the number of ballots cast in some of these races that we saw on Tuesday turnout was way up from what we've seen in recent Democratic primaries. And when you're bringing in uh, people who aren't used to voting in primaries, uh, but who are who are midterm voters, maybe you're bringing them into the process. I think that dilutes maybe the the uh, the the influence that the activist wing of the party has when you're broadening the electorate. That's a really good point. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that way. But and you know when you zoom down into some of these these house races, like you mentioned, this is where we have seen a little bit more occasionally of those progressive upsets, maybe over uh, someone a candidate who is at least touted himself is more electable, right? I'm thinking the, the biggest Eastman example. In, exactly. in Nebraska too. Yeah. Exactly. Over former Congressman Brad Ashford. Let's spin things forward now. Uh, we're we're almost done with the primaries uh, this year. We've got two God. really big ones uh, coming up in, in a couple weeks. And then we've got uh, a, a few more spinning into uh, September. But the, the, the really big ones coming up are Arizona and Florida on the 28th. And I want to talk about uh, what we're watching as we try and figure out how things are shaping up there. Uh, in the fall, uh, let's start with the the Arizona Senate primaries, the the Republican race to replace Jeff Flake, who uh, announced last year uh, he was spinning up his reelection run. He was also feuding with President Donald Trump, which tanked his approval numbers, and so he decided not to run for reelection. And uh, there's there's been a pretty interesting Republican primary to replace him there, but 
uh, one of the most interesting things is that it's still going on, right, Steve, despite the fact that Congresswoman Martha McSally has the support of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and all his, his outside groups. And a big reason for that is Trump himself. Yeah, no, you've seen this is a race where Donald Trump has weighed in on all three candidates. Uh, he has spoken very favorably of Congresswoman Martha McSally, including earlier this week uh, at an event uh, for she's she's a military veteran. He's also, though, had very nice things to say in the past about former state senator Kelly Ward. You may remember Kelly Ward from her unsuccessful primary challenge against John McCain in 2016. Uh, John McCain and his campaign was very effectively able to paint her as way out of the mainstream, a little into conspiracy theories, uh, but she still got more than 40 percent of the vote. Uh, so there is a base of support for her. The the, the good thing for McSally here and, and the problem for Ward is there's a third candidate and this is di- a direct result of Donald – of President Trump's actions. Joe Arpaio, the former Maricopa County sheriff who uh, was convicted of obstructing justice, pardoned by President Trump last year. He wouldn't be eligible to run for Senate if it wasn't for that pardon. And Trump has obviously had some nice things to say about him, uh, despite some of the the, the allegations of, of the way he's and, and his conviction for breaking the law and uh, the treatment of prisoners under his his watch. Um, so you have a situation in which all three candidates can and are claiming some measure of support from the president, even though he hasn't endorsed. And I know that uh, at the National Republican Senatorial Committee, that's a source of some consternation. Well, and our, our colleagues James Arkin and Alex Eisenstadt did a great story that captures all of that and also points out that Kristen Sinema, who is the Democrat running to uh, to take on whoever that eventual Republican nominee, has been able to basically build a positive, uh, unanswered campaign sort of to run um, unopposed in, in because she's running unopposed in her primary, that she's been able to just do nothing but positive stuff on herself. And that's certainly uh, a point of real consternation for Republicans who feel like they've given her a free pass. I would say practically unopposed. There are other candidates on the ballot, Fair. but not not ones who have uh, raised raised a lot of money. But the, the I thought the interesting thing that they pointed out in that story is cinema is the only presumptive Democratic nominee in any Senate race, big Senate race in the country, who has not faced a single attack ad yet. That's crazy. I mean, it's partly it's because this primary has been going on so long without getting resolved, and it's such a late primary. Presumably on August 29th, Republicans are going to unload on her. It's just a question of whether she's, with all the effort she's put in and the millions of dollars she spent, has she kind of built a protective shield around herself, pitching herself as this bipartisan Democrat who you know could potentially turn turn one of Arizona's Senate seats blue for the first time in decades. Um, Elena, you've been following – uh, on the flip side, Democrats have a rumbling, brewing primary problem of their own in McSally's House seat, which has been long seen as one of their top pickup opportunities uh, in, in any House district in the country. But the primary there is still unresolved despite – uh, House Democrats picking a favorite a long time ago. Right. So this uh, seat was always on the list of sort of the perennial battlegrounds, but it became even more of a priority after McSally announced that she wasn't going to be running. It became an open seat, therefore an easier target to flip. But they haven't been able to settle this primary. So Ann Kirkpatrick, who uh, ran for Senate in 2016 and failed to uh, failed to, to failed to win that race, is now trying to come back to Congress and is running in a different district in Arizona Second. But she's faced uh, some real 
challenges from the left, including Matt Hines, who is a physician who was the 2016 nominee for this House seat and ran against McSally and lost himself. And he's emptied his wallet into this race. He's poured a lot of his own money into it. He's been able to challenge her on television and keep pace with her, if not outstripping her on different weeks. And look, this is a real challenge for for Democrats. This is one of those places where um, whoever's talking the loudest, um, especially in a primary where we don't see necessarily a boost in turnout like Steve was talking about, then uh, sort of a more activist candidate like Matt Hines might be able to get through. And Democrats are really are worried about the um, about the viability of that. Yeah, the DCCC had tabbed Kirkpatrick as an early favorite uh, in that race a long time ago. But she, I guess one of the issues, and a lot of their candidates don't have this, actually, because they're first-time candidates. Kirkpatrick, on the other hand, has been in Congress for years, right? And so she's racked up votes on energy, on the environment, on guns. And Hines has been walloping her on on some of those. Uh, right, because she represented a, a pretty a moderate, a very moderate district herself. So she was a moderate member of Congress. And certainly Hines has been trying to use that against her. And, and in the same way, the Kirkpatrick campaign has tried to litigate some of his votes. He was a state legislator and, and had some uh, votes that they're trying to make a, a real case to to primary voters where he was maybe more uh, friendly to uh, to the Second Amendment than they're comfortable with. And so they're both trying to litigate each other's voting records. Uh, but the fact that Hines has been able to empty his own wallet into it and keep pace with her is, I think, what's making uh, Democrats who want to see Kirkpatrick move through very nervous. David, what are you looking at as we, you know, we're, like we said, we're winding down in primary season. Uh, we just talked about Arizona there, one of the uh, few big ones still coming up. But what, what, what else are, do you have your eye on as the calendar uh, moves forward, uh, you know, through the end of the primaries and into the general elections? Well, as it, as it relates to Arizona, everybody get ready to roll your eyes. But I'm, I'm interested in turnout, uh, particularly among Latinos. Yeah, Democrats have looked at that state for how long in presidential elections and, and kind of hint at spending money there, or maybe they'll they'll run a late ad or show up for a late rally in a general election, uh, just kind of waiting, I think, to see when demographics will flip enough for that to really be a competitive state. So I'm interested to see if, you know, will Latinos really vote uh, in Arizona this year? And then elsewhere, is, is nobody interested in Gary Johnson? I'm just fascinated <laughs> that he decides to drop his his run for Senate on, on Tuesday when everybody's focused somewhere else. Um, I'm really interested to see what happens there in New Mexico. The Gary Johnson comeback train. It's amazing. Can I pour some cold water on this? (laughs) Gary Johnson got 9% of the vote in New Mexico in 2016, running against the two least popular presidential nominees in modern times. The idea that he's going to be a major factor, enough of a factor in a good Democratic year to tilt New Mexico's Senate seat potentially to Mick Rich, the Republican nominee, I, I just don't see it. Gosh, you guys are so focused on wins and losses and impact. <laughs> He's just an interesting politician, I think. That's and, why and you I, live outside you know. the Beltway, Dave. He, he knows. He still knows how to have fun. He still knows how to have fun. Um, time to say goodbye. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining uh, me in the studio, Elena. Thanks for having me. Same to you, Steve. You got it. And uh, David Siders, thanks for joining us on Skype. Thank you. A big thank you again to all of our guests this week. That was an excellent show. You'll notice one topic we did not cover. Omarosa. She Omarosa bit the hand that fed her. Some credibility problems with Omarosa. Who was heard using the Omarosa is frankly a chance to set the record straight about the president. Omarosa Manigault Newman. We did not talk about her in this episode, but our producer Michaela Rodriguez said that she had the perfect music, hence this brief mention. So I will pause here for the music on the saga of Omarosa. They look up to me. I got fake people showing fake love. 
to me straight up to my face straight up to my face i've been down so long it look like now that that's over with we are also going to turn things over briefly to one nerdcast super fan to uh, help take us out this week Dan Sylvia hanging out 15 miles outside of the DMZ in South Korea is going to help us out with the credits. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Dan. Listeners, we found Dan because he emailed in to say he was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again next week. I don't trust a word you say. How you want to click up after your mistakes? Look you in the face and it's just not the same.